The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. I have become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies speak against me and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. O oh God, do not be far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed, who are the adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. For I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. O oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O oh God, do not forsake me, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Also your righteousness, O oh God, is very high. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again, then bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Also with the lute I will praise you and your faithfulness, O my God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you, and my soul which you have redeemed... My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. All right, so this is Joshua 19, 10 through 16. It's entitled The Inheritance of Zebulun. Marvelous typology in here, I've got to tell you. Um, 19, 10 through 16. The third lot came out for the children of Zebulun according to their families. Then the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. Their border went toward the west and to Marlah, went to Dabashet, and extended along the brook that is east of Jokneam. Then from Sarid, it went eastward toward the sunrise along the border of Kislot Tabor, and went out toward Dabarat, bypassing Japhia. And from there, it passed along on the east of Gath, Hefer toward Etkazin and extended to Ramon, which borders on Nea. 
Then the border went around it on the north side of Hanaton, and it ended in the valley of Jiftael. Included were Kata, Nahalal, Shimron, Idala, and Bethlehem. Twelve cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Does anybody want to come up and give the sermon? Okay. <laughs> Abarim defines Zebulun as glorious dwelling place. That is what I have consistently used in any sermon where Zebulun is mentioned. However, they also define it as instance of exaltation. I actually didn't know this until after I typed the sermon, since the introductions are always the last thing that I type. In fact, I didn't know any of what I will tell you in these intro comments until the sermon was done. That is kind of sweet, because as you will see in the second section of the sermon, I struggled with what the verses were saying, trying my best to come to some other conclusion than the one that almost immediately caught my attention. And I mean while I was typing the sermon, not while I was looking for the typology. I kept saying, well, it won't be that. <laughs> Abarim provides these words in their evaluation. They say the verb zabal means to exalt or honor and occurs only once in the Bible. The noun zevul occurs five times and refers to some lofty abode which is designed to honor the occupant. I didn't know any of this. They also say the name Zebulun was probably around long before the Hebrew verb to dwell gloriously was invented. Haw Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament makes mention of Spicer's link to the Akkadian Zevulu, which denotes a bridegroom's gift. Curiously enough, in Hebrew, the word for gift of endowment is zeved, from the similar verb zavad, meaning to endow with or bestow upon. I had no idea about these things. Remember this, or come back after the sermon and remind yourself of it. I think you will be surprised. Our text verse comes from Daniel 5, it is verse 16. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Abarim will be quoted again later referring to an enigma that they could not solve concerning these sermon verses today. The enigma will be explained today. Whether you feel the explanation is satisfactory is up to you. If it is actually correct or not is known to the Lord. I can only go where I believe the word is taking us. The explanation to me seems perfectly evident and beautifully relevant to the rest of what we teach in this church concerning a particular doctrine. This is not eisegesis where one inserts presupposed meaning into the text. Rather, we use exegesis here. The meaning is drawn out of the context. Are you ready? Great things such as the hopefully solving of an enigma are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of two thoughts today is as far as Sarid. It's verses 10 through 16. The final seven tribal land inheritances are being assigned according to the lot. The first was to Benjamin. The second was Simeon. The third is now to go to Zebulun. Zebulun was Jacob's tenth son, 
the sixth and last son of his first wife, Leah. Though he is younger than Issachar, the lot drawn for him comes before Issachar, which agrees with the order of blessing by Jacob in Genesis 49, where it said, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. The record of his birth, meaning Zebulun, is found in Genesis 30. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. On the march from Egypt to Canaan, Zebulun formed together with Judah and Issachar, also born to Leah, under the standard of Judah. Of their inheritance now to be detailed, Charles Ellicott gives an interesting commentary to consider. He says, with regard to Judah and Zebulun, it is noticeable that we find their union reproduced in the earthly history of our Lord. Mary, who was of the house of David, and Joseph of the same lineage, are found dwelling in Nazareth in the tribe of Zebulun. Thus, the north and the south alike had a part in David, an inheritance in David's son. There is a Bethlehem, Joshua 19.15, in Zebulun, as well as in Judah. The name is not found in any other tribe. Verse 10, the third lot came out for the children of Zebulun according to their families. And ascended the lot, the third, sons Zebulun, to their families. This is the second and last time that the word Allah, ascended or arose, is used in relation to the lot. That ought to tell us something right there. The first was with Benjamin. Elsewhere, it either says the lot was, or it said to go or come forth, using the Hebrew word yatsah. What seems certain is that both of the names are typologically anticipating Jesus Christ. Benjamin means son of the right hand. And according to Operim publications, as we saw a moment ago, Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. As Jesus is the son who ascended, Allah, Mark 16, 19, to the right hand of God, seen in the name Benjamin, which is his glorious <coughs> dwelling place, Revelation 21, verse 3, the use of Allah anticipates the ascension of Jesus. As for the ascending of Zebulun's lot, it is according to the son's families. Verse 10 continues, and the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. ad Sarid, and was border their inheritance unto Sarid. It is a way, and this is a very curious thing, so it ought to clue you in that something is going on. It is a way of presenting a border on the south from some point within the inheritance. Thus, a person standing within the inheritance might say, the southern border of this inheritance lies all the way to Sarid. From there, Sarid is somewhat of a middle point used to trace the borders to the west in verse 19.11 and to the east in verse 19.12. So it's funny that they say the border is all the way down there, and then it defines the border in two different directions. Why would the Lord do that? Of the land to be described, Kyle says the following. The inheritance of Zebulun fell above the plain of Jezreel, between this plain and the mountains of Naphtali. 
so that it was bounded by Asher on the west and northwest, Joshua 19.27, by Naphtali on the north and northeast, Joshua 19.34, and by Issachar on the southeast and south, and touched neither the Mediterranean Sea nor the Jordan. It embraced a very fertile country. The name Sarid is found only here and in verse 12. It is identical to the word Sarid, a word signifying a survivor or one who is left remaining. That comes from the verb Sarad, meaning to escape. Hence, it signifies escapee or survivor. With that understood, the borders of Zebulun are next defined. Verse 11, their border went toward the west and to Maralah. Ve'alah gevulam layama u maralah, and ascended their border to westward and maralah. The word yam signifies both sea and west, so it could either read seaward or westward. However, the border does not reach to the sea, and so westward is preferred. Maralah is seen only here. It comes from the word ra'al, meaning to quiver or shake. That is only found in Nahum chapter 2, where it says, The shields of his mighty men are red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. Ra'al. Abarim defines the name as place of the flag. They then note that this simply conveys the idea of a border marker made out of a flag. That's all it means. Verse 11 continues, Went to Dabashet. Ufagal bedabashet, and impinged in dabashet. The name is found only here. It is the same as the word dabashet, meaning a hump, like the hump of a camel in Isaiah 30, verse 6. Here it says, this is from Young's literal translation, the burden of the beasts of the south into a land of adversity and distress, of young lion and of old lion, whence are viper and flying saraf. They carry on the shoulder of asses their wealth, and on the hump, the dabashet of the camels, their treasures, unto a people not profitable. That, however, is an intensive of the word devash, honey. In other words, the meaning of honey is being equated to the hump of a camel. And you have to ask, how did they come to that conclusion? All right. The reason why is James Strong said, well, it must be that a hump of, or I'm sorry, a mass of honey is like a, a sticky mass is like a hump. And so they say it looks like a sticky mass of honey on the back of a camel. That makes zero sense at all because if you have honey, it tends to do this, yes. not do this. Yes. So he tried to think of a reason. Why would they use the word honey to speak of the hump of a camel? Well, we have to go back and look at the typology that we have used consistently all the way through the Bible so far. We've mentioned honey many, many times. What would it be? It is the place of a camel's prosperity and abundance. Thus, Dabashet means honey, but it is intensified. Therefore, and I did this before checking the typology, I just sat there and evaluated the words and translated it as place of prosperity and abundance, because that's what it means. If you remember, anytime we would have a land flowing with milk and honey, I would explain what that meant. So I'm being consistent in my hermeneutics, okay? Verse 11 continues, and extended along the border that is east of Jokneam, Ufaga el Hanachal, Asher al Yokneam, and impinged unto the brook which upon face Jokneam. 
The type of brook, Nahal, we've seen this again and again, comes from Nahal, to take possession and thus an inheritance. The brook is believed to be the river Kishon, mentioned in Judges chapter 4. Jokneam means either the people will be lamented or let the people acquire. This was the westward extension. Next, all of a sudden, it starts going east. Verse 12, then from Sarid, it went eastward toward the sunrise. Veshav, Misarid, Kedma, Mizrach, Hashemesh, and returned from Sarid eastward, ascent the sun. This begins the eastward extension of the border, the southern border. It heads in the direction of the ascent of the sun. Verse 12 continues, along the border of Kislot Tabor. Al-Givu Kislot Tabor. Upon border, Kislot Tabor. The meaning of the name is rather complicated. Kislot comes from Kesel, which means loins or flanks, stupidity or confidence, but it's misplaced confidence. Tabor may come from the word tabar, to break, or from barar, to clean or purify. Hence, it may mean purifying stupidity, purifying misplaced confidence, or breaking stupidity, or something similar to that. Verse 12 continues, and went out toward Dabarat, bypassing Jaffia. The New King James Version saying bypassing is inexplicable. Ve'yatsa el ha-dabarat ve'ala yafia, and went out unto the Dabarat and ascended Jaffia. The name Dabarat is from Davar, word, or to speak. The T at the end may indicate a simple, perfect, second-person singular. You spoke or you have spoken. But the name is prefixed by an article. Thus, it would have to mean the word from you or something like that. From there, the ascent goes up to Jaffia or Illuminus, verse 13. And from there, it passed along on the east of Gath Hefer. The translation skips a word, thus missing the full sense. In Hebrew, Umisham Avar Kedma Mizracha Gita Hefer. And from there passed over eastward to the east, Gath Hefer. Gath Hefer means winepress of the pit or winepress of shame. Both meanings meet in intent. A pit is that which is dug out, and shame is something which, when it is uncovered, exposes that which is shameful. This is the birthplace of the prophet Jonah, as noted in 2 Kings 14.25. Next, the border goes, verse 13 continues, toward Etkazin, and extended to Ramon, which borders on Nea. These are very, very complicated words. It is quite uncertain how to actually translate them. Most older translations will give full names. New translations use part of them as a description. Itakatsin veyatsa Ramon hamtoar hanea. Itakazin and went out Ramon the metoar, meaning the outlining, the nea. Et, literally, itakazin comes from two words. The first means either now or time. Katsin means chief or ruler. Thus it means something like judge now or time for a ruling. Ramon means pomegranate. But as we have seen many times, the pomegranate symbolizes harvest-ready fruit. And so it can further mean mature mind or harvest-ready. The words the metoar may be a separate name or a description of the word Ramon. If an independent name, it would mean the outlining. If tied to Ramon, it would mean outlining of a pomegranate or outlining of a mature mind. 
Of this, Abarim says the following. Most modern commentators and translators see the metoar part as part of the narrative, but that's actually hard to defend. This participle occurs only in Joshua 19.13, where the descriptions of the tribal territories go on for chapters, which seems to suggest that the author is saying something that doesn't get said anywhere else. It's a mystery that perhaps in the future might be solved with greater authority than anybody's guesses. Nea comes from nua, to wander or waver. With the article, it would be the wandering or the staggering. Verse 14, then the border went around it on the north side of Hanaton. Rather, venasav oto hagevul mitzafon Hanaton and went around it, the border from north Hanaton. The word it is referring to neah. Hanaton comes from Hanan, meaning grace or favor. The T in the middle probably indicates an intensive form, and the end at the end may signify place of. Thus, it would mean regarded with favor, place of much favor, meaning grace, or extraordinary free gift. Verse 14 continues, and it ended in the valley of Jephthah-el. Vehayu totsotav ge yiftach el, and his outgoings, valley, jiftah el. The valley here, a ge, comes from geva, pride, which in turn comes from ga'a, meaning rise up, high, and so on. This means the sides of the valley rise up, forming a valley. The name yiftach is also the name of the man who would later judge Israel, jephthah, he will open. Taken together with El, or God, the name means God will open, or God opens. Ellicott defines it as God's opening. They all carry the same general meaning. Verse 15, by this time I've already got my mind, I, I think I know what this is talking about, but I kept saying, no, it can't be that. It can't be that. Verse 15, included were Qatar, Nahalal, Shimron, Idalah, and Bethlehem. The verse begins with and instead of included were. Kata comes from katan, small, thus it means little or even very small. Nahalal is identical to nahalol, found only in Isaiah 7 verse 19. There it is translated as pastures or watering holes. Young says commendable things. That then comes from nahal to lead or guide to a watering place or a place of rest. The most known use of that is found, of course, in the 23rd Psalm. He leads Nahal, me, beside the still waters. Strong's defines it as pasture. I translate it as led to rest. Shimron comes from Shamar, to watch or guard. Hence, it is watching or vigilant guardian. Strong's defines it as guardianship. Idalah is not translated by most, and there are several guesses as to its meaning. Smith's Bible Dictionary says, Memorial of God. Bethlehem means house of bread, but it can equally mean house of war. It's either Beit Lechem, house of bread, or Beit Lacham, house of war. It is a different Bethlehem from where Christ was born. Verse 15 continues, 12 cities with their villages. Obviously, the five villages listed in this verse are not 12 cities, okay? Thus, the word and at the beginning is saying that some of the cities previously mentioned laying along the borders belong to Zebulun. Others are border cities belonging to the adjoining tribe. The total number of existing cities with their villages belonging to Zebulun is 12, 
With all of these identified, the listing of Zebulun's borders and cities ends with, verse 16 finishes with, this was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun according to their families, these cities with their villages. This sums up the listing from verses 10 through 15. It is the third allotment of the final seven, coming after Simeon and before Issachar. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so, heavenly streets we'll trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. Completion of the gospel story. Where, O death, oh, where is your sting? Where, O Hades, oh, where is your victory? When Christ our Savior, us to himself, does he bring? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. Our second thought today is stupendous symbolism. Terrific typology. Up, up, and away. The various locations and the descriptions of them made zero sense at first because I am so dismissive of the sensational. For example, I do not believe that God speaks to people today except through his word. I do not believe that Jesus comes to us either while we are awake or while we are asleep. That would be illogical based on what is said in the New Testament writings. With the word complete, we are asked to trust in the word by faith, not expect or rely on sight. All sensation does is distract and lead us away from what is sound. People want to speak in tongues, but that is not unique to Christianity. Several religions claim they speak in tongues. Cults, pagans, shamans, Japan's God Light Association, and others, they all claim to speak in tongues. I had a neighbor in Japan, a Shokugokai Buddhist, that chanted out tongues every single morning. We could hear her as we passed her house. People in pretty much every religion on the planet claim to have divine visions, visitations, projections to the heavenly realm, and so forth. Catholics, of course, have the, you know, the Fatima visions. None of these things actually edify at all. Even if they actually do occur in Christianity, which they don't. Colossians 3, 4 presupposes that there is one specific time that Jesus will come and manifest himself to his people. Therefore, it is not only unwise, but it is against scripture to accept any supposed vision of Jesus Christ today. This understanding kept me from initially making the conclusions that I finally made on these verses. I am not a date setter, and you won't find me either predicting the rapture or bothering with anyone who does. If someone thinks he has the timing of that figured out, he is wrong. Despite this, there are several sets of verses in the Old Testament that do point to the rapture. I did a sermon on them in the past, and I still agree with the conclusions I made there. The typology is rather evident once you have seen it. After a bit of review where the same thought kept creeping into my mind, meaning that these verses seem to be pointing to the rapture, I finally had to say to myself, well, let's see if it fits. Listen and let your own mind decide. I shall present my conclusions and leave them as they are for others to accept or to dismiss and for the Lord to eventually nod that they were correct or to take away rewards at the Bema seat because they were not. Beginning in verse 10 was the note concerning the ascending of the lot, using the word Allah to ascend, something unique to Benjamin and to Zebulun. 
Both speak of the finished work of Christ, Benjamin and Zebulun. Benjamin, son of the right hand, signifies Jesus' ascension to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, Mark 16, 19. Zebulun marks the location as God's glorious dwelling place. That's Revelation 21, verse 3. Verse 10 then continued with the thought that Sarid was somewhat of a middle point used to trace the borders to the west and east from there. Now, why would God do that? Why would he say we're starting here and we're going to go this way and turn around and go that way? Unless he's telling us something. There it said, Vehi gevu nachalatam ad Sarid, and was border their inheritance unto Sarid. Sarid means escapee. It defines those within the border. This follows with 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. Now remember, the ones inside the border are the escapee. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. From there, this border will start by going west and then east. Westward movement signifies the anticipation of meeting God. We've seen that again and again and again since we started Genesis. This has been explained many times, but allow me to refresh your overloaded mind. One comes from the east, enters the outer gates of the tabernacle, continues into the courts. You're still traveling west, past the altar of sacrifice, past the laver, through the outer door of the tabernacle, and into the holy place, forward to the veil, still going west. Through that, into the holy of holies, where God resides. God is west, and man will forever look west to search him out. This westward line begins with an ascension to Marala. As shown, Abarim defined the name as place of the flag, noting that this simply conveys the idea of a border marker made out of a flag. A marker is something that is only useful in the light. Hence, one must be a son of the light, a son of the day to see it. From there... The border proceeded to Dabashet. It is a difficult word that we said most people just simply translate as hump because that is how it is translated in Isaiah 30 verse 6. But as I explained, it is an intensive of the word Davash, honey. Honey is being equated to the hump of a camel. It is the place of the camel's prosperity and abundance. Thus it means place of prosperity and abundance an obvious reference to our inheritance. Verse 11 continued describing the border as impinging unto the brook, the Nahal, which is upon face Jokneam. The Nahal, as we said, comes from Nahal, meaning to take as a possession or an inheritance. This in turn comes from Nahalah, an inheritance. That faces or is before Jokneam, let the people acquire. The whole thought indicates the border identifies the claiming of the inheritance of prosperity and abundance. From there, verse 12 went back in the opposite direction, eastward, as it said, and returned from Sarid, meaning escapee, eastward, ascent the sun. This would be before the time of the escapee. The word Kadem signifies east, but it also means 
before in time. We've seen that in many, many sermons. The word kadem, when they say before or ancient, it's the word kadem. And so, this is defining how the escapee became an escapee. As the border travels east, we are moving back in time in relation to the state of being an escapee. Does everybody now see why the border goes in two directions? There's the border down there. We're going to go this way. And then we're going to define it going that way because it's going back in time before the moment a person became an escapee. That's what's being typologically seen. Whether you agree with my translation or not is irrelevant. That is what is being seen in the two directions. The words ascent the sun actually begin the process. The Shemesh, or sun, is used to describe the coming of Messiah in Malachi 4. We've seen this in quite a few Joshua sermons. Its last use in the Old Testament is Malachi 4. It anticipates his arrival, his coming. There it says, but to you who fear my name, the sun, the Shemesh of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. With this understood, the border is said to have gone upon border Kislot Tabor. The name gives a good sense of those who have come to Christ. Think of yourself before you came to Christ. Choose your favorite as they each convey who we once were. Purifying stupidity, purifying misplaced confidence, breaking stupidity. That's probably best for Charlie Garrett right there. He had to have my head broken in order to come to Christ. Prior to that, meaning east, the border went out to the Dabarat and ascended Japhia. As explained, Dabarat means the word from you or something close to that. It is a reference to how one becomes an escapee. Here it is, Ephesians 1.13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That, of course, is based on the source of the word, which is God. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. From there, the border went on the ascent up to Japhia, illuminous. It refers to the source of the word, speaking of God in his nature. It next said in verse 13, and from there passed over eastward to the east, Gath-hefer. Gath-hefer means winepress of the pit or winepress of shame. The meaning was explained saying that a pit is that which is dug out, and shame is something which, when it is uncovered, exposes that which is shameful. This forms a picture. The people who are escapees were in the current state of the people of the world. Everybody understand that? I was once in the same state as they are. I'm not anymore. I'm an escapee. But it defines what we once were. In this context, a wine press symbolizes the place where judgment is poured out such as in Revelation 14. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. This is speaking of people being, you know, mangled by the stomping out of them, the process of judgment, all right? For her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 13 continued with the super complicated words that Abarim noted were a mystery that perhaps in the future might be solved with greater authority than anybody's guesses. I can only go by typology here. That's all I can do. 
If it is correct, it would explain the mystery of the words. They say, Itakazin, and went out Ramon, the metoar, meaning the outlining, the nea. Et kazin is defined as judge now, or time for a ruling. That is what those who are currently in the wine press must do. We were all in the wine press at one point in our lives, ready for God to pour out his judgment on us. We must decide what to do. As was noted, Ramon means pomegranate, but the pomegranate symbolized harvest-ready fruit, and so it can further mean mature mind or harvest-ready. Connected to the metoar, it would be the outlining. If tied to Ramon, it would mean outlining of a pomegranate and thus outlining of a mature mind. It is the answer to the proposition set forth in the gospel and which responds to the words of Paul in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That was precisely defined by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Those who are mature, meaning coming to the knowledge of God in Christ, are outlined. They are distinguished from those in the winepress of wrath. Next mentioned was haneah, the neah. That came from nuah, to wander, thus the wandering. That word was first used when referring to Cain, the fallen line of Adam who is not redeemed. Here's what it says in Genesis 4. This is Young's literal translation. When thou tillest the ground, it doth not add to give its strength to thee. A wanderer, nua, even a trembling one, thou art in the earth. From that, verse 14, the border goes to tzaphon, or north. The word signifies that which is hidden or treasured away because the north receives less light in the northern hemisphere. It thus speaks of those who are hidden with Christ in God. We've seen that typology many times in the previous sermons. That's Colossians 3, verse 3. This northward movement is around Hanaton. Any of the three names gives the sense of the event. Regarded with favor, place of much favor, meaning grace, or extraordinary free gift. The border goes around the wandering, those who are lost in the world. It is those who have received Christ extraordinary favor and the gift spoken of by Paul from Romans 5. But the free gift, I know that's a redundancy, free gift, it's just, it's a redundancy. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. Then the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Verse 4 continued with the border ending at the valley, the gay of Yiftach El, or God will open, or God opens, or God's opening. That is a clear reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did the work. He is the door. We respond to the gospel and the door is opened. Revelation 3, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then from Revelation 3:20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him 
and he with me. Verse 15 noted the names of five cities within the inheritance of Zebulun. These would reflect the state of those included, not the process of how they were included. Everybody got that? The cities are within the borders, and therefore it defines the state of them. They are Qatar, Nahalal, Shimron, Idalah, and Bethlehem. Qatar comes from Qatan, small. Thus it means little or even very small. This would not reflect the number, but the character. The word Qatan is used both literally and figuratively. In a figurative sense, it is the least in importance, the smallest of note, and so on. When Paul had his name changed from Saul to Paul, he chose his name as Paul. What does Paul mean? Small. Everybody get it? It is reflective of the words of Jesus and the thought repeated in the epistles. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then again in Matthew 19, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was not saying that little children because of their nature as little children will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven unless they are by nature, like little children. It is the state of total trust by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. This little child terminology is used by both Paul and John in their writings, such as Galatians 4.19 and 1 John 2.1 and so on. The next city is Nahalal, which I translate as led to rest. It is a logical translation based on the evaluation that we gave earlier. That perfectly reflects the state of those in Christ, even as David described it in the 23rd Psalm. Shimron was next. It is watching or vigilant guardian. It is no doubt the state of those who are anticipating their glorification. Is everybody here excited about the coming of Jesus at the rapture? There you go. That's you. That's what's being seen right here. Idalah was defined by Smith as memorial of God. A memorial in the New Testament is defined by Thayer's Greek lexicon as that by which the memory of any person or thing is preserved. That perfectly fits with those awaiting the call, even those who have died. Listen to this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We're all a memorial. It doesn't matter if you're alive or dead. He has got you covered, okay? Continuing on, for we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be gathered up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Memorial of God. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Finally, the last city, Bethlehem was named. It means house of bread. Christ is the bread of life. It signifies those who are in Christ being sustained by him until that wonderful day that scripture promises to those who are his. The final note of verse 15 was that there were 12 villages. 12 is the number of 
perfection of government or governmental perfection. This then symbolizes the entire body of those of the church, represented by the 12 apostles. We ended with verse 16, which said, This was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun, meaning glorious dwelling place. Such is the inheritance that has been secured for God's people since the coming of Christ. Those who have called on him have this promise, which is a guarantee from God who cannot lie. It is a glorious set of verses that speak of the redemption of Jesus Christ, a marvelous state in Christ, and an anticipation of the glory of the coming of Christ for his people. Obviously, this could simply be a general statement of all who are saved by Christ at any time, but because this is tied to those who escape and those who do not escape, it must certainly anticipate the rapture. There are those who will not escape in the end times, and yet they will be saved during the tribulation period, right? But that is not the focus of what is revealed here. Rather, the words are tightly connected to the events leading up to, but not during the end times the world will face. If you don't believe that, wait for next week's sermon, because these are following an order, a pattern. As such, I conclude that this is yet another clear and reliable anticipation of a pre, not mid, and not post, tribulation rapture. Next week's sermon will confirm this. If that is incorrect, nothing is lost. We will still be going through the end times to some extent anyway, wouldn't we? But if it is correct, and it is, it gives us a definite connection to the already clear timeline provided by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. When I did the rapture events uh, update about a year ago, I gave an analysis of 2 Thessalonians 2. Actually, I gave it of all of the rapture verses. Somebody took my analysis and they said, well, listen, Charlie Garrett down in Sarasota says this is the timeline. So they said, how do you defend against that? And so what did he do? He did a study on the Greek that somebody did for him. And he evaluated a different verse than the one that I said it hinges on. Because you can't evaluate the verse that it hinges on and come to any other conclusion. So instead he pulled a quick one and went down here and evaluated a separate verse. That's how clear a pre-tribulation rapture is, okay? 2 Thessalonians 2. We are not of the night. We are of the light and of the day. This is the reward and it is the honor of being in Christ. Those who are saved and yet believe in a mid or a post-tribulation rapture are still going to be taken out at the rapture. They're just going to be a little bit more surprised than those who go and understand what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? They are going. People always say, well, you're not going to go out the rapture if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That's nonsense. They're just going to be like, oh, it's really happening. Okay. I've just read you that. And I told you when I did the introduction to the sermon, which I always do last, that I didn't know all of these names. I just read Alberim's evaluation of them. I didn't know any of this because I'd never bothered with it. But I went back and I read their entire evaluation of the word Zebulun. And listen to what he said. Not only does it mean glorious dwelling place, which I've used since Genesis chapter 30, it also means instance of exaltation. Sounds like a rapture to me. The, it comes from the verbs of all. It means to exalt or honor. Sounds like what happens at the rapture from the noun Zebul. Some lofty abode which is designed to honor the occupant. 
Sounds like the rapture. And then going down to the Akkadian Zabulu, from which it all comes from, it denotes a bridegroom's gift. Sounds like the rapture. And then from Zavad, meaning to endow with or bestow upon. Sounds like the rapture. I didn't know any of that. I typed all of that last. So I'm pretty certain that this is correct. If it's not, I'm the one that's going to lose rewards. You believe what you want to believe. I was so excited. I came in here that Sunday and I said to you all, I don't think this is the best sermon I've ever typed by far, but it was the most refreshing sermon that I have typed in a long, long time. I was so elated at the end of the day because I'm not making this stuff up. The Lord decided that Sarid is the point he's going to start with, and then he decided he's going to go west and then go east. Why would he do that? Unbelievable. It's all right there if you do the study. Did anybody get this in their study? You did, Jim, you did. Unbelievable. Good job. (laughs) The typology here gives us a marvelous reassurance of the pre-tribulation rapture. Be settled in your doctrine, have faith in the word and in God's promises, and keep your seatbelts fastened. Jesus is coming for his people, and may that day be soon. Amen. Wonderful stuff. Okay, now that I've given you the sermon, and I made my first time ever appeal for people to watch a particular sermon, okay, because I know a lot of people watch rapture stuff, and they're not saved. How do I know that? Because I've had people that watch the Prophecy Update, many people over the years, email me and say, you kept saying, watch the sermons, watch the sermons, watch the sermons. And so finally I started to watch the sermons and I came to Jesus Christ. People are watching prophecy updates that are not even saved. That's a crime. So it's my job now that I've given this sermon to tell the people that may have just clicked on this for the first time that you need Jesus. Without Jesus, you are not going out at the rapture and all of the prophecy videos in the world are not getting you any closer to God. What you need to do is believe the simple gospel that Jesus has given you. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried, and Jesus Christ rose again. That is the gospel. And if you can believe that simple message, that he died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner, that he went into the grave with your sins, and then he came out of the grave without any sin, meaning your sins are still in the grave, and that he is God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. If you can believe that he is the Lord God incarnate who came and died for your sins, you will be saved. So please believe that message today. This is what I would ask of you, that wonderful message of redemption. And then you can be an escapee. You can go up with the rest of us. Praise God for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Or you can stick behind and go through the wine press of God's wrath. Don't consider that. Don't consider that. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Our closing verse comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verses 9 and 10. Here it is. This is the nut of what we just saw today. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or whether we sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, Comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Great stuff. Great stuff. Next week is Joshua 19, 17 through 23. A great inheritance above and beyond by far. It is entitled The Inheritance of Issachar. That'll be our 40th Joshua sermon. I can't believe we've done 40 sermons in Joshua. Unbelievable. 
The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've said that these borders all point to this subject. If I thought, oh, I want people to think that he's talking about the rapture all the time, I would have done this with every single sermon we've done. I just make stuff up and do what people do all the time. Studying for this sermon took me a good 10 hours, 12 hours, right? And I want it to be correct. I'm not going to make stuff up. And this is the only sermon in all of Joshua that is pointed to a rapture. It's unbelievable. God is telling us a story and he's developing a theme all the way from Joshua chapter one. And he tells us Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And then he gives us another sermon. And then after this, he says, this is what's going to happen to the people who are in Jesus. Well, next week we'll find out something else. It's all a theme that's being developed. Unbelievable. Got a question for you. I need you to raise your hand because there are several people that know the answer to this. But I got to start getting rid of stuff. I just got so much stuff. Today, if you get this, you will get creamed possum with sweet potatoes garnished in coonfat gravy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Raise your hand, please. Best day of your life if you get this. What family was complimented for not drinking wine or living in houses because their ancestor told them not to? Not the Nazarites. Not the Jebusites. You're very close. I saw your mouth. You're very close. It is one of the sites. Hey, I'd give this to you for that. Nobody got this? You're going to kick yourself. You're all going to kick yourself. The Rechabites. Yeah. From, oh, you said, it looked like that's what you said. I was waiting for you to say the Rechabites from the book of Jeremiah. Listen, why is that such an important story? Does anybody know that? Y'all know that story? Why is that story so important? These guys are living in tents and they're not drinking wine. Generations after their great, 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 great father said, you are not to drink wine and you are not to live in houses. You are to live as sojourners in this world, right? And what did they do? All of these descendants of them, what did they do? They obeyed their father. And Jeremiah is told by the Lord, my people won't obey me, their creator. And these guys are obeying their father, a lesser figure, and yet they're obeying him. How notable are these people? And he said, they will always have a descendant to stand before me because of their faithfulness. We can't honor the Lord, but we can honor something that our father or some church or some, you know, political body tells us to do. How sad. And that's the point he was making faithfulness in an unfaithful world. The inheritance of Zebulun, the third lot. I'm sorry, nobody got possum gravy today. The third lot came out for the children of Zebulun. According to their families, so was their deed. And the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. Their border went toward the west and to Maralah, went out to Dabashet and extended along the brook that is east of Jokneam, Urah. Then from Sarid, it went eastward toward the sunrise along the border of Kislot-Tabor and went out toward Dabarat, bypassing Jafiah. And from there, it passed along the east of Gath-Hefer toward Etkazin and extended to Ramon, which borders on Neah as well. Then the border went around it on the north side of Hanaton and it ended in the valley of Jephthah-El. Included were Katah, Nahalal, Shimron, 
Idalah and Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages too. This was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun. According to their families, these cities with their villages, they did accrue. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how good it is to know that you have a home waiting for us. And your word says that you're going to come and take us out of here someday before the world falls into a time of wrath, tribulation, death, and disorder. You're going to bring us home to a place that we can't even imagine right now the glory that lies ahead. We see the beauty of a sunrise. We see a smiling face on a newborn child. We see things that dazzle our eyes, and none of it is even close to what we will see when we see you in all your splendor and glory. May that day be soon. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Did anybody figure that out while I was giving the analysis? No? Well, I thought, you know, I mean, I'm sitting there typing this thing, and I'm saying, that's not that. But it kept telling me, you know, it sounds like the rapture. And I kept saying, that's not that. I got to the typology section, and I tried everything to say it's not. I, I looked at it. I analyzed it. And after about an hour and a half, I finally said, all right, it's got to be that. And so I went through it. There it is. Okay. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I don't think that is wrong. It just is such a wonderful story God is telling us. He's giving us hope in the middle of, you know, Sergio, are you listening, Sergio? I bet you he's not. He's probably asleep. He was sick and Rhoda's getting it. So anyway, um, uh, he said, I told you this a couple weeks ago. He said at the beginning of the Joshua sermons, he said, I was just reading the borders. You get into the borders and he says, I don't know how you're going to make sermons out of that. Man, they write themselves. It's unbelievable. You just figure out what the words mean figure out what the directions mean, things like that, because it's already been done. The directions we've known since the beginning of Genesis, basically. Go west, you know, if you're going to look for the Lord. Go east if you're going into exile. What happened to Israel when they were exiled in AD 70? They went east, right? Off to Babylon. And then when they come back, they're returning to the presence of the Lord, going west. Okay, this is, all of this makes sense. When the sun comes up in Sarasota, Florida, in the middle of the summer, it comes up over here, and it goes over there. But during the winter time, it goes way over here, and so the north is the hidden side. At night now, I'm starting to get where the sun is just far enough north where it's coming through some stained glass windows that are on the north side of my house. A couple days a year, I will see that. It's not there yet, but a couple days a year, the red eyes of these ducks in the stained glass turn brilliant red. And it's beautiful. I only get to see it a couple days a year, but the rest of the year, it's hidden. All of these things mean something in the Bible. And when you just pay attention to the meaning of them, the typology comes together. That's what you need to do. Pay attention to the typology because God is telling us a story. Such wonderful stuff. All right.